You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I'm joined, as always, by Sean and Rick. But this time, we're joined by a special guest. His name is Ross Thompson. He is a fantastic human and uh, currently free agent, uh, although it is possible that by this time this podcast actually releases that he will be taken. This uh, Ross is extremely experienced in marketing and design and doing all sorts of things in the game design world, and I can't wait to dive in. Welcome to the show, Ross. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for the invite, and I'm glad to talk about kind of what, what we got going on, especially for all the, all the Kickstarter crowdfunding stuff, so it should be cool. We want to talk all the marketing stuff behind designing a big game. And that's a pretty broad topic, but big games, heavy theme and, and that kind of thing. That's, that's really the topic at hand. So, I mean, that's definitely a good topic. It's, there are, I think Kickstarter across the board has had games that are, have like defined what a big thing is versus like, Oh, we're going to do a card game or do like a, you know, like a 45 minute game too, but it's all down to what you feel like, you know, bringing to market. So, yeah, I think that's probably what what gets me most excited. In fact, um, I want to say five or six years ago, I read this article on Jamie Stegmeier's blog that talked about should you make a small game or a big game for your first product? And his conclusion was that you should make the thing you're most passionate about and whether that's the small one or the big one. And so I just decided to say, okay, I'm going to make this huge monster of a game because that's what I wanted and wanted it mostly what I wanted to play. I mean, that's, that's really good advice too, because is it's, you're going to be putting, you're going to learn so much the first time through that if you're, if you're not making a game that you're like extra passionate about, you're going to, there's things that you could let slide or not go where if you know something that you want to make this the best that it could possibly be, you're going to explore the different avenues, check out all the different things you can do from marketing, production, shipping, logistics, you know, staying up late, you're going to be up late no matter what. But at least if it's something that you're like really excited about, you're not already thinking about the next one and you can focus everything on this one and be very present for that. Right. So. Right. And, and for me, you know, I had other game ideas that would come across my mind and I was like, Oh, I really want to see this happen. And uh, you know, like a dueling card game of some kind and other, other experiences. And then I always realized like, wait, these games are really fun there. I romanticize them and I think, Oh, this is going to be really fun to make something like this. And then I'm like, you know, I need to not do that so that I can actually finish this one because this is where my real passion lies. I really want to see this hit the world. And, and I'm going to make that idea wait because this one is, you know, the one that, that has all the passion. Right. So, yeah. So I've been in the gaming industry for about 14 years. I got my start working at a game store. Uh, I used to work, used to work at a game, game Empire here in San Diego, and then for a long time I uh, was a press ganger for Privateer Press, which was their volunteer program. And so I used to run tournaments and demos all across Southern California, and I ran a, a big gaming league uh, called the SoCal Beach Thralls, which was a uh, it was like the, the, the Mechana Thrall with a surfboard thing. So we, we we had a Monday league that would go on all the time for that, and kind of like like where I get into like how I got my start in the industry was I had been um, running these demos and working at the game store and really into it. And 
I got I was on the Private Press forums, and there was this convention called TempleCon that was coming up, and it was in uh, Rhode Island in February, and all the press gangers and our little press gang chat were like, "Oh, you got to go to this convention. It's like the coolest thing ever." And I'm like, "Cool. I had never gone to a convention outside of Comic Con San Diego." So being a San Diegan, we have like the behemoth here locally. Yeah. So you always go to it and everything like that. But I'd never been to a smaller convention, even though San Diego had a really big geek scene with sci-fi and steampunk and book shows. I'd never really gone to a gaming convention before. So I uh, booked a flight, hopped on a plane and ended up in Rhode Island wearing shorts and flip-flops and a hoodie oh, in February. <laughs> so really good time to be wearing shorts and flip-flops in Rhode Island. Yeah. And uh, I, I got to the convention and it was so cool. It was like a 2000 person event. And it was like, there were, there were companies that were doing small little booths showing off their games and demos. And it was all about war machine and everything like that. And I was so inspired. I came back and decided that I could run my own convention. And that was how yeah. I started doing kingdom con. Um, hmm. which was, yeah. Which was a convention that I started running here in San Diego and did that for 10 years. And that kind of like got my, got my, start going and essentially that first year of kingdom con i applied for a job at private Tree press and i became a their retail support uh person so i moved i was 20 years old i went, went up to seattle and moved up there and uh that was my first job in gaming and uh, it was a lot different than what i expected from it's different when you're when you cross the veil Right. And you're like, cool. Yeah. I, I love volunteering no anymore. Running things. It, it's work, right? Like everybody's still passionate and everything there, but there's, you have to have that consumer to publisher shift. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't think I was ready for that shift yet. So I was there for a while and it was great. It was right during their crunch time and they were taking their whole game over from the first edition to the second edition. There was a lot of stress going on and it just wasn't for me. So I ended up coming back down to San Diego and essentially in that first few months, I ended up getting picked up by this company called Cool Money or Not. Who's that? <laughs> yeah. So at that time, they were a company that was an online web store that had a – their main thing was you would vote on all the different miniatures that were on the website that were all painted and entered by different people. So now when you're online and you see uh, pa miniature painting in different Facebook groups or on Instagram or on Twitter – Back then, in like 2008, 2009, there was this website called Cool Money or Not, and you would enter all your stuff on there, and people would vote on them. And that, that was really cool. They would do a big annual book and stuff like that. And their goal at the time was they wanted to be the main miniatures web store. So if you saw a really cool miniature that you liked, you could just click and buy it right there. Mm -hmm. So they were working on being one of the biggest miniature markets, essentially, right? And so I was working there, um, which was great. So I was doing their social media and doing sales and doing all this stuff like that. And we, we ended up going to PAX East, one of the first ones, back when it was still small. And we ran into the guys from Fun to 11, who, Luke Peter Schmidt, who's now currently at the new Office Dog game company with, with Asmodee. But back then he had a company called Fun to 11, and they had just finished putting a game on Kickstarter called Miskatonic School for Girls, which had raised $30,000 on Kickstarter. And it was like, whoa, yeah. what is this thing? Like, he, he's like, oh, yeah, we had this cute game. We did this stuff. We put it up on social media. We raised, you know, 30 grand. We only needed 10 grand to get it published. And it was huge for us. And they already had a second one in the works. And they were doing all these things. And we're like, this is really cool and really neat. So we looked into it and uh, essentially started 
up uh, this thing cool when you're not had a lot of miniature partners and stuff like that. And so uh, they figured out what game we wanted to kind of bring to the market. And then literally about, you know, a couple months later, uh, we launched this game called Zombicide. And, uh, and did you were the one who actually pressed the button. That on is that the one. one thing I will take uh, out of that for sure is yeah. and uh, there were at Adepticon, which was uh, which is a big miniatures gaming convention in Chicago still going on. And we pressed that go button and uh, totally did. And I ended up running demos for three days straight uh, with pizza and Red Bull right there doing the whole Zombicide thing. So. Yeah, I mean that's the like there we were, you know, that kind of forging the way on that. Uh, I would never have guessed. Like they just announced the new Iron Maiden character pack for Zombicide mm-hmm. this morning, right? Like, <laughs> the, the Nicholas stuff there, and but yeah, I mean that was and you that sold was, like, millions I, of Zombicides, right? It's yeah. it's gone on to be uh, kind of a, a, a staple Xerox of that style of game, right? But yeah, I mean that was back then when that we didn't know what it was going to be, right? And so yeah, so I pretty much we we pressed that go button and launched and dave doust and churn and you know and dave peretti that whole team there we got it going and uh it was kind of when you say big games it's interesting right because at the time for zombie games there weren't that many there was zombies from twilight creations and then there was last on earth from flying frog right both which were very different style games and then this was one of those first like when you look back to what dungeon crawl games were out there there was descent right there was hero quests there was stuff like that, but there wasn't, here's a bunch of miniatures and here's a bunch of things there. And we were doing like for the actual campaign itself, I think back to the lessons we learned on that. And I still use some of those lessons when I talk to folk about Kickstarter now, you know, yeah. and that was, that was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. We're definitely going to come back to Zombicide. I think that that one is, is oh, some yeah. of the most, some of the most fantastic lessons that I pull constantly just really it just all i feel like it all goes back to zombicide i mean the modern way that stretch goals happen and i mean part you know. of first first i mean first we can definitely get, get like we can do a whole phd deep dive on that right but uh yeah it's <laughs> so, yeah so, so from there i ended up working at cool when you're not and then um uh it, it, it was a uh, you know it, it was great but they were growing to a new company and everything was going on there and they were really in atlanta and i like being in san diego so we ended up having a split. And then from there, I ended up working at a handful of different companies for my you know, career. So I was at Ninja Division for a while. Um, and we did some of the big Super Dungeon Explorer Kickstarters. And then from there, I ended up going to IDW, which we ended up doing some really cool campaigns there as well. I was at the Op for a big handful of years, right when they were getting into the hobby market. And then I just left Steamforge Games. And I'd, I'd been there for about a year in a few months, which was great. And they've got a big thing coming up. So it was a good... It was a good time for a split there too. And I'm really glad that I could be a part of everything they were doing. So um it's awesome. I'm sure that whatever company picks you up is is gonna really, really enjoy all of that knowledge that you built. You know, I mean it's it's incredible. I you know, I had my predictions as as to when, you know, Sam Healy had to leave the dice tower. I first thought, you know, of Solomon Kane and how much he liked that game, and I thought he's going with Mythic Games. And so I but I I don't know, I I guess. You have all of this experience in these big, heavy thematic games and just selling them and making, you know, I mean, it just, it just seems like anything that you touch is amazing. Um, I don't know. It's hard to, hard oh, to man, explain. That, 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 that means a lot. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I will say like taking a leap from leaving Steamforged and doing all that, I've had a lot of companies reach out and be like, Hey, what can we bring you on and do all these things? And that's been really cool. You know, like there's always that weird imposter syndrome, even though you've been doing it for a long time and you, you never know if 
people actually do care. And so it's been really neat. I'm excited to see where this, the last few weeks have been really cool with a lot of different meetings. So I'm excited to see where it's going to end up. And um, it's, I've definitely been proud of myself for being able to come into a company and elevate it in some way and then leave it better where I found it. And I'm pretty proud that I haven't burned any bridges. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I think you're it, one of the darlings of the board game industry, oh. you know, like Jamie Stegmeyer is probably the, you know, one of the darlings there. There's definitely, you're like the deep state darling. I feel it's like, deep state, you know, no, that's everyone. An interesting yeah. one. <laughs> if you know everyone, if, if you, if somebody needs to know someone, yeah, it's like, like, uh, you know, all the comic con people, you're like, Hey, you want to do a talk at, at comic con and like, the uh, you know, remember you invited me in for a for a talk at or a panel on it was like the Comic Con San Diego Comic Con Museum. Yep, and, uh, Sam. Yeah, that was yeah. We, we just did one a couple of weeks ago up up there, and they finally opened. Yep, so oh, it was a whole awesome. they had a big Spider Man exhibit going on too. Everything there. Yeah, it's been it's I, I've definitely had an interesting career, you know, and I'm not done. So like, it's gonna keep it's gonna keep rocking away. But a, a big thing that I like doing and, and want to promote is the more people we can get into the industry and we're here with, we can get playing games and the more information that we can share the, the better, right? Like there's, cause there's so much information out there and a lot of it is you just got to know where to find it. And sometimes those doors are hard to, to see, yeah. right? Like we always say, Oh yeah, go to Jamie Stegmeyer's blog to read up on that. But at the same time, like if you don't know how to decipher what he's saying, that's not very helpful. Board game design lab has a really good podcast and, all their uh their their forum too twitter in itself is a huge resource and there's designer blogs on board game geek and everything there but at the same time that's a lot of homework for a lot of people right and so yep. sometimes just sitting down for a call and walking that through there how many like you guys have a whole business based around helping people find crowdfunding and doing all of that the fact that there's companies that can do that now that are successful is speaks to the industry and then speaks to the people that are working behind those things to make it happen. If you guys weren't able to produce and publish and get people crowdfunding, you wouldn't be in business, but here you are making it happen, which right. is pretty cool. Right. And, so. and it's so, it's been so interesting, you know, kind of on, along the same lines, we found that by far the, the majority of clients that we would, that we earn even to this day are first time creators new people with a brand new idea and not an idea of how to actually get it funded, but a great idea on, you know, a, a twist on a genre or, or something like that and something that deserves to be made. And so I really love talking with those people too and helping out and, and seeing them rise and be successful is, is always a lot of fun. I think it's interesting talking about the, you know, getting more people into, into the hobby because you know, when I grew up, it was like pre-internet internet was like dial up and it was slow. So most of the gaming you did with your friends was tabletop games. I grew up playing 40 K warmer 40 K and that's what we would do. Like we all weekend we just play 40 K, but then the internet, the speeds got better. So we kind of put away our 40 K and got into like world of Warcraft and played lots of things online. But now I kind of feel like the internet's so ubiquitous and it's almost it's novelty now to go back to, to like non like digital ways of entertainment. So it's, it's great seeing this research and the people just wanting, I think maybe more authentic experiences face to face at a table, whipping out something physical and tangible. So that's ultimately I think helped the industry as a whole. So and since it's an easy sell now, you could just say, well, do you want to get away from technology? I think most people say yes. So spend too much time on it generally. Well, here we go. Here's a great avenue to kind of uh, experience things in a different way face-to-face -face with people and have those experiences. 
I, I completely agree. I literally spent all last weekend playing 40K too. So <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like, that's exactly it, right? Like we can do all these. I, I will say though that during quarantine, being able to find and, and re-explore what the industry is in that online space was pretty neat. I played so many games with Twilight Imperium over Tabletop Simulator that it was just like, but that, that, that being said, the minute we could play in person, we were at the table making a half yeah. and doing all that. So it was, it was good. It, it reminds me of the time. This is probably what a dozen years ago now. Cause I'm so old. I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, there was a major, major uh, power outage in like almost all of California and half of Arizona because some yeah, some kind of power pole something tripped and cascading failure across the west side of the country. Man, I played so many games that day. Yeah, (laughs) it was great because there was no power, there was no internet, there was nothing. I remember during the day, people were like lining up outside the grocery store to get ice. (laughs) <laughs> and it was just crazy. And then, of course, at night we had all the candles lit in the house, and we were just playing board games, having a great time. And that's you know, that's the nostalgia part I like about board games. Yeah, you know, it's it's you can connect with more people online, and, and it's more interactive. However, you know, just being able to sit down and and talk to each other and also socialize while you're playing is such you know a great experience. And even the pandemic hasn't hurt it at all. I mean, in fact, sales went way up yep. uh, during the yep. pandemic and with Kickstarter and whatnot. Um, because I think people just, you know, miss the human touch, the human aspect of gaming. I was going to say, that's, that's it's 100%, right? Also, we played so much Last Night on Earth on that day. It was super good. But uh, it's, like, people always say, like, like, what's the next trend? What's the biggest thing? And and for me, it's it's butts and seats, right? Like, getting people in, this, in, this seat, in the seats, playing games and doing all of that. And because there's so many more people that just don't know yep. about games. And getting everybody back to playing games is good. Mattel wouldn't keep marketing Uno if everybody yeah. had played Uno, right? <laughs> yeah. but it's like, and, the, and, the, and the hundred versions that go with it. Like, yeah, I think Uno right? Flip is the big one right now. They're flipping. Yeah. I don't know what they're flipping for. But yeah. like the fact that like Mattel is still marketing Uno to folk and people are still buying it and playing it because there's still people that need to play games, right? Yep. So, and you know, I find don't forget your Opoly series. Oh yeah, I could go deep on those. yeah you know um i i I find that just as a you know former like a recovering i don't know i played pretty hard so recovering professional gamer i I guess i don't know um i really uh appreciated just getting together with friends and you know i would i would bring my 50 pound uh desktop tower and monitor and all the setup over to a buddy's house. And we would con we would trip their breakers. We would have so many friends in the same room. We'd have to like split people across various rooms so that we could actually keep our computers on. Because even when, you know, back in my like big MMO days, like, I mean, world of Warcraft kind of started it. So like 2004 to like 2015 or so MMOs just like crazy. I still felt the urge to be, in the same room with friends and that was that was meaningful enough that we made it happen every every so often you know like every month at least and um i just didn't know that quality hobby level board games existed that could kind of give me that same feel and intrigue of a video game but on a tabletop that did not i it was like you know the only video or the only board games were risk and monopoly and stratego and stuff like that which are fun, but at the same time, you're not going to, you know, they're not, uh, well, I guess hobby games is a, is a great word for it. 
you know, something like Zombicide, you can play through scenarios and over and over again and oh, yeah. uh, have a blast. Well, that's, I just it's, didn't know that existed. And that's like, like for us, some of the big games that got us deep, because like I found D&D and Warhammer through my best friend's older brothers. Mm-hmm. Right. And like we, our first game of D&D third edition, they were converting their second edition characters into third edition in the same room. Right. And I was like, what a trip. Here we are doing this thing. But then like the next week we were playing Ticket to Ride and playing, you know, Carcassonne and playing Catan. Right. And it's like those were some of those intro games that are still top sellers. Right. And so when you look at some of those games that are gateway games or just solid gamer gamer titles, they work and they set that all up. And like like now we can go deep and be like, oh, there's Castles of Burgundy and there's, you know, like all these different games that are deeper you can go to the board game be caught in this list and find it all there but because there's a game for everybody but at the same time so I, I think back to some of these core games like for me Battlestar Galactica is one of my favorite games right and we played that game to death and it's it's the same as like a vampire or not a vampire but like a werewolf kind of style game but it was one of those first ones where a licensed game wasn't a dirty name mm-hmm. right and it really fit the theme and all of that and it's a heavy chick game but you know it was one of those things where it's not a monopoly. It's not a risk. It's like, cool, hey, it's Battlestar Galactica. This rulebook is going to take, you know, 30 minutes to read through and somebody just got to explain to you how to do it. It's not the same game we grew up playing with our mom and dad, right? Yeah. So, but here we are now, you know, and there's 5,000 games coming out a year. Every Tuesday, you're going to hear about the biggest things on, on Kickstarter. And then if you're on any of the trade newsletters, you know, ICB2, Gamma, Mojo Nation, whatever, you're hearing about all the stuff coming all the time. So like, we're at a cool point right now where we're, we're not even in a golden age anymore. Like we are past it. It is at a, a point where this is the industry, mm-hmm. right? Like our, our, our biggest problems that we're facing now is going to be like overproduction of paper, shipping, shipping costs. And, you know, like, are we damaging the environment by making too many board games? Right. Like that's, yep. <laughs> that's where we're at now, which I think is also fair discussions, but not for this podcast, but like that, like it's, and that's a, a, a good problem to have, right? Like Magic the Gathering and Pokemon cards are using up so much paper that's driving up board game prices for people that are trying to get print runs for their first thing up. It's like, darn you, you know. Is <laughs> Spe- so. Speaking of damaging the environment, how, how do you feel about uh, like technology integrated board games? Like for example, for me growing up, I had the Advanced Dungeons. We played a lot of Advanced Dungeons Dragons Second Edition, not Third. Um, but one of the oh. gateway games that we played was Heroes Quest, which just came out with I think a new relaunch of it. Um, and we thought it was so cool because back then, if this is course before we had really cool computers and internet, they had CDs that came with the game. And then depending on what you did in the board game, it would play like a dialogue CD, or you'd have background music, and that was so oh, yeah. cool. So, what do you what do you think about the um, integration of technology um, uh, with board games these days? So that's a great question, right? And it's it's really interesting because there are some that are doing it well, and there are some that aren't, right? And like, if you want to look back to one, of, I'm going to date myself here in the industry stuff, but like, if you want to look back to one that had a really cool idea that totally bombed was Ex Illis, right? And they had a they had, they were big. They had all these big apps and these big things at Gen Con, and they'd bring it all out. And they were about it was Warhammer without having to know the rules because you can just pull the app up and it'll do all these things. And they were trying to figure out how you could play the game with by just moving on squares, and because the app would do everything for you. And it just it just didn't work, yeah. right? But now, like, when you look at things like HeroQuest, 
which just came out with the, the wizard app. So now you can play co-op instead of somebody playing as the, the wizard in the dungeon. That's great. because I, I mean, uh, Imperial Assault, I started to kick it off with the Fantasy Fight games, and now they have the Lord of the Rings game, which does it really well, which is super cool. But there's some that haven't really pulled it off. And so it depends on h- how much integration do you want to do, right? Because like, you can look at things like what Asmodee is doing with Asmodee Digital, right? And they have the board game apps that are on there. And some games translate really well, and others don't. And then you can look at stuff like what uh, Last Game Board is trying to do, right? Where yep. they have this whole digital you know, $900 platform where you can now play board games on that and play with other people around there. And it can, if you put the miniatures on there, it can track it and do all that. Um, so it's it's kind of the, what levels do you want to see it at? I, I, I'm always down to see what's going on, right? And see how people are exploring with it. Is it ever going to fully replace it? No. And because like we've talked about it in this podcast already, having that tangible, being able to sit mm-hmm. next to somebody and do that and have my rule book open and do all that is just great that's what we like about that but i mean for warhammer last weekend i had my phone up the whole time because it had my army list on it and i can track all my stuff on it super easy compared to having a big binder out so i think there's there's tools where it works well and there's some where it doesn't we're going to keep pushing that boundary eventually magic leap is going to make its big jump into the space and then we're going to have ar glasses playing with board stuff with hidden pieces and doing shadow stuff there and once magic leap makes that push i'm excited to see who does it well right is it always going to be the way to play no but it's going to be cool right so zuckerberg's entering the board game niche (laughs) i think one of the advantages of playing warmer 40k is that everything else sort of seems easy mode in comparison you know when you got a rule book that's this thick and you got a codex for each army like everything everything else just seems easy mode like what are people complaining about (laughs) oh for sure i mean it's 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 you know we had the rule book in the the codex and then my army list and then the newest updates right so and then the prep too no yeah so but then it's funny because then you're like like, so they just had the Leagues of Vote. I mean, for Games Workshop, they just had this new army come out, Leagues of Votan, and they had to make rules changes to the book before even half the army was released. And so now they've got all these books out there that don't have the right point amounts in it. Yeah. Some rules difference. But like, so if it was a video game, awesome. You just do a, a, a patch. Yep. Everything is updated and you're good to go. But for board games, we're stuck with this well, now it's printed and everything there. So like Board Game Geek and your own website has to have an updated rule book on it and do all these things. And if somebody hasn't been following all your updates, hey, this rule's broken. Cool, go to the Board Game Geek form or head for customer service. So how do you do that? We're I, I feel like we're always going to have that problem in board games because you should always have a, a rule book in your, in your game no matter what. But yeah. of course, you know, having a QR code to go to your website to go see the latest updates is is where I think the trends are going, right? I think that's a really good thing because back in the the good old days when I was a kid with NES, I mean, once they made the you know once they pressed that game, it's done. You couldn't get like software updates and stuff like right. that, and that's what the that's what board games are like now. And of course, now video games, of course, are just like, oh, we're just gonna halfway do it, <laughs> and then we'll set it out because we have production deadlines, and then we'll fix it later with a patch or two or ten or twenty. Now, here's here's like a, maybe an opposite, like a flip side of the coin with technology and 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 board games. I was a big a fan back in the days of Civilization, um, and then of course they came out with a board game, and I tried it, and that was like. 
for me personally, like I rather just I almost like I practically gave up and said, I'm just going to play the, the video game because like the setup for me was like two hours long to set up the board game for it. And it ran just like the, the video game did, but it was so complicated as a game. And I just thought, you know, that was, you know, pretty crazy. So like that's like, you know, the, the opposite technology. I thought that, you know, maybe something's. I don't know. Well, and that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of where it gets into for for these, these larger board games. Right? Bring kind of back to the original question: is is at what point in time does a large board game is it a detriment to itself being too big? You know, so, so one of my favorite board games is Twilight Imperium, right? And that's kind of like the big four X space yeah. galactic drama thing, and uh, you you know, and everybody's prepped for a twelve hour day, but at the same time, there's so many. If, if you've got a few people that know how to play and if top, there's a couple of good videos and some stuff there, we can be set up and good to go in like 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And then if, yeah. and as we go along the day, yeah, it's a big game, but we're all invested. We, we want to know what's going on and, and that's okay. Kind of getting through it by yourself without if you're not that excited and it's everything is clunky and all of that. It can, it can pull away. But like, if you look at games yeah. like Gloomhaven or Kingdom Death, or you know, like those those things where they, it's this massive massive darkness, right? Like it's how do you know you're going to get into that? It's that's just what you're geared for, right? And and not everybody's going to be into a giant board game, and that's okay. Yeah, I definitely think that the the audience is one of the probably the first things to think about when you're making a big game. Your mom's not going to play it is generally a good rule, uh, probably rule of thumb. You know, if you make a big game and you've you know, you expect non-gamers to say, wow, Twilight Imperium, I've never heard of this. And then to actually sit and, and make it through a 12-hour experience or 10. For me, actually, the first time I ever played Twilight Imperium was at Kingdom Con. It's like Kingdom yeah. Con 5 or 6. Nice. played with Royal Gaviola, who loves Twilight Imperium also. Yes, he does. And I received the instruction to watch that 32-minute video or whatever it was. I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch the video like everyone else and we had a really great time, but there was one guy who he took a smoke break in between every one of his turns and he started just begging us to be done. And um, there was actually an opportunity that I, I was at like four points. Ruel had like nine and I had the opportunity to just entirely decimate Ruel's army and decided not to. And he ended up winning the next turn because the you know I wanted to be nice to this one guy, you know, and right. I feel like non-gamers might not be the target for your big game right which which is okay right like i'm not going to subject somebody who's brand new to board games to a twilight imperium thing uh that's just not because because you want to think about is this somebody i, I want to play with again do they, they want to have a good time because they want to come back right and when you look at so asmodate is a brand new thing called like asmodate plus or uh what it's on it's on their website and they access one that's what it is and on there they've taken all their intro games or gateway games, Ticket to Ride, Small World, Carcassonne, Catan, and so on, and kind of put them into this, like, if you want to get into board games, buy this list, right? And it's got Pandemic on there, too, and some of those things. And you're like, this is a really cool way to, like, look at their catalog and be like, okay, they've, they've realized that these are the games that will get people into it to have a good time. And then they can show off their, their, their second wave, their third wave. Mm -hmm. You like Pandemic. Awesome. There's Pandemic Legacy. Are yep. you ready for that? Right? You liked Catan. Here's five expansions that can add three hours of gameplay onto it, right? So it, it's that kind of thing is a good model to look at because they've obviously crunched the numbers, 
you know, and been like, well, we know that people want to play 45 minute games. Great. Mm -hmm. But what makes them want to go to a two hour mark or for a three hour mark? Like when when you look at something like like, uh, like Charterstone, right? Or some some of these legacy games where they are short games, you know, the game's going to be 90 minutes, maybe two hours, but you know, you've invested at least 10 gameplays into it, right? And that right there, if I've bought a board game and I know I'm going to play it at least 10 times, that's huge. Yep. You know, like I, I, I buy a lot of board games and I can't think of, you know, I've, I've got a few that I've played more than 10 times on it, but those are the games that I'm playing way more than 10 times, right? right. Like t- Tiny Towns, that's getting played all the time. Ting Domino getting played all the time. Magic Maze getting played all the time, right? So Houston Cues, I know I worked on it and did all that, but like, I love that game. You know, so, but at the same time, like role player, I've got role player from Thunderworks games. I love that game. I probably played it like maybe six times, right? And I've got everything for it. But I just, I think it's a neat system. It's a cool thing, but it's hard to get people that are ready to do like a dice crunching this mm-hmm. kind of thing game, right? When we could do something else. So it's kind of interesting to think about that when you're looking at what kind of games do people want to play and how do you craft your game night and all of that. So. Yeah, that's why I haven't purchased Heroes of Might and Magic 3. Just, uh, you know, just hit Kickstarter. I've been following it. I wanted to see kind of what type of game it was. If it, if it followed the, you know, basically an uh, asymmetric 1v1 or 1v1v1, you know, whatever, like free-for-all sort of game. Um, that's exactly what it is. And I tend to, it's it's kind of like Civilization, I guess, but I tend to really enjoy those games. However they would never make it to my table because the people that I play with, if we're playing a game like that, they want it to be cooperative or, you know, why not just play side, you know, as kind of like what everyone says. Oh, totally. And I, I, I got here as about minute three on my computer. I play the game all the time. Right. <laughs> and so that's why my Facebook is blowing me up with the ads for that campaign right now. It looks really cool. I'm never going to play that game with anybody, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I love, I love heroes three and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm with you. It's like, Cool, I'm going to back it because I like it. And the license thing obviously gets me in the gameplay. looks solid. It looks, the campaign looks really well put together. Everything is neat. But at that point in time, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'd rather just play it on the computer and do head-to-head and play against somebody right there. And I hate I, saying that because, like, I love Heroes 3. But I'm yeah. with you where it's like, like, even my game group, like, at that point, we would just play Twilight Imperium, you know? Yeah, so, right. It, in that way, you're kind of, you know, with, with big games... In fact, before before we jump in uh, further, let's define what a, what is a big game. What makes a big game? How would you yeah, define that? So are, we, are we talking about IP? Are we talking about time? Are we talking about experience? So yeah, I mean those are all reason. those are all really good points, right? So I, even just that is it an IP? Is it this? I, behind me right now, I've got Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a big game with an IP, but by itself, it's it's a base game with like fourteen expansions. Right, they're they're not connected. There's no big campaign overarching thing. You're just playing each individual hunt, right? So, is it a big game? It is because each box comes with this huge freaking thing. It's it's kind of chunky with the rules and everything. There, it's kind of grindy. So you're playing in you know 90 minutes, which is cool. But it's a, I would consider it a big game because in order to get the full experience. You're going to need all these expansions and doing all these things. I've got Bardsung up there from Steamforged, right? That's kind of their Gloomhaven sort of thing. The selling point in the opening description is it's 120 hours of gameplay, right? Like that 
is a big game. It's a $200 MSRP box. It comes with 70 minis, tiles, and crunches, and all of that. And it's an awesome dungeon crawl. It's like a Wargamer's dungeon crawl, right? Because you're doing your attacks and moving through tiles and doing all these things. That's a big game, right? So I, I, for us, like I, I, at least on the hobby end and on the hardcore hobby end, I think of like dungeon crawls are big things. Big Euros are big games. Things that are going to be more than two hours, I would consider a thing. Things that cost more than a hundred bucks, probably a big mm-hmm. thing. Do I need to get a new Ikea shelf to put the board game on it? Probably a big <laughs> game, right? Like, so it's, it's one of those things. Like Kingdom Death, right, is another yeah. really good example of a big game. And I could talk about that. So it's funny. So when I used to work at Colony or Not, we used to sell miniatures for this guy called Adam Poots. And it was just one-off miniatures that were pinups. They have 25 bucks a piece. They were resin cast. They were all numbered. They had a print in them. And they were and they were um, um, wax stamped closed. And that eventually became Kingdom Death. Yep. Right? Which is kind of neat. But when that first campaign launched, right, it was this, hey, you're going to get it in two years kind of thing. But when it first came out, you know, and, it, and it, when it finally delivered, he only did a certain number of them because it was so big enough people really didn't know who he was and everything there but when that game finally delivered it lived on the number one and on the top 20 on board game geek for like a year and a half so yeah. when he finally launched kingdom death 1.5 that's that raised that like, 12 million right yeah 12 million dollars on mm-hmm. and it's still it's still delivering right yeah. like the gambler's chest hasn't come out yet and everything there and everyone's always like, oh, where is it coming? You know, and they're getting mad at Adam. And you're like, dude, Adam's going to deliver. This guy's this guy's good for it. You know, like, and I, for a while, he used to give the updates that I would always be like, I want to get to where Adam's at. Because he's not doing these monthly updates. He's doing, here's an update when I'm ready. Right? Uh-huh. And yep. everything there. I think, I think the, the consumer has changed. I had to mute the Facebook group for Kingdom Death. They're a little too uh, anxious right now. Mm-hmm. But even then, like that's a big game, right? Like, you, but that—that's kind of a lifestyle game at that point, right? right? Like, like when, you, when you look at games like Gloomhaven and Kingdom Death and Bard Song and the Lord of the Rings game from that, it's even some of these, these legacy games, right? Like they're—they're they're big games, but also, but they're being sold to gamers that want those kinds of games, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's a—that's a good thing because they're not like, Target's not going to carry these these massive games but right. they can carry games that the end of like look at jaws of the line yep. right like when that got into target it auto sold out right away in all their b stores and everybody i think every, i think everybody was blown away by how well that did and at that point in time target was only caring about maybe 30 or 40 games per store and they ended up bumping to like 75 games per shelf mm-hmm. now half those games are Op, Ravensburger, Big Potato, Funko. There's, there's that license level stuff. But I mean, there's some $50 games that are on those shelves right now. Yep. You know, like Harry Potter Hogwarts Battles on there and some other, some other stuff that you're like, oh, that's not a game I think I would see at a Target or a Barnes and Noble, but yep. they're there now. So it's kind of neat how that that market's changing. But at the same time, the I think the gamer audience, because of the internet, and because of all these things are more like Warhammer, most people know what Warhammer is now, if you're a gamer, at least, right? And D&D, every pop culture show has got a D&D episode now, yep. and all this stuff like that. The I, D&D episode get... of Community is the best of all oh, of yeah. so, Have you guys watched Lower Decks at all with Star Trek? 
No. Uh-uh. Right? So, like, spoiler alert, Dude. but in, in this season, they had an episode where they played D&D, but it was Batless in, in honor. It was like a, a, a Klingon version of that, right? <laughs> and as they're talking to it, it's a digital game, so they're talking to, like, a robot AI Klingon. And at the end of it, they get to the end of it. And they're like, if you want to get the next expansion, be sure to subscribe so that you can get the next release and the whole thing there. And I was like, oh, they, this is totally how that would be, right? So and it was the Frankie selling it to whatever. But um, That's awesome, though. Yeah, so it's like that culture has been a little bit more ingrained now. Obviously, South Park has done some board game geek stuff and here and there. So it's it's kind of interesting when you get into that, who's that audience and all of that. But at the same time, like, here's a fun question for you guys, and I don't, I'm just, I'm just playing around here a little bit. Do you think Magic: The Gathering is a big game? I, th- I played Magic from like '97 to 2008 or so, and I think it definitely delivered a big experience. I, I, Magic is not a big game in and of itself until you figure out that the rabbit hole goes really deep and you fall it's in. A lot of meta, doesn't it? And it's yeah. yeah, it's too late. It's like every two years, you're basically you know, replacing your, you know, I mean, you have five or six sets that you have to buy that are going to, you know, that, that you're able to, if you want to play in tournaments and that kind of thing, you know, I remember I had a bunch of magic cards just spread all over the floor of my room and my cousin and I were building new decks and we we're going to play each other and that kind of thing. And we we're just noobs, like I'm going to make a merfolk deck, you know, and, and just total scrubs. But then I got into tournaments and I'm like, oh man, I need, you know, at the time it was Urza's block and then Mercadian masks and Onslaught, I think were the three blocks that were, that I played in tournaments pretty hardcore. And it's like, there, you just need four copies of certain cards. You need yeah, to play you, the meta. You just use four. No. You just need four. It's okay. <laughs> That's yeah. it. Four force of will. That's all I need. You know, I was pre magic at the gathering. The big games I used to play was Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Spellfire. I don't know if you guys oh, know sure. that. Yeah. Yeah. Star- had a trading game star trek i was big on star trek when magic came i just maybe i felt like i mean i know it's out there it's a big it's a big pond but i sort of felt like an outsider so i never really got into it i played it a couple times but it wasn't my thing i see from a collector standpoint it's really good however though uh, you know when i'm when i'm cruising on youtube i see more adults opening up pokemon cards on uh on youtube than magic i don't really i, I rarely see a magic the gathering like you know pack open it's always like you know it's always like pokemon which I, i'm surprised about so you know that's 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 my two cents it's definitely well, become a that's... lot more accepted right like nerd, well, nerd stuff used to be very like i remember in the highest yeah when i was in high school when i was in high school you hid you didn't, i didn't tell anyone i played 40k i was like you had a, you had a, a you, you were in the circle of friends and you played and you kept a secret you didn't definitely didn't tell girls yeah <laughs> but playing pogs was okay yeah. yeah, Pogs are fine, but you got to hide the 40K codex on the, on the bus, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because, like, the game itself is quick and it's short, but now you've invested $1,000 in the first six months, right? Yeah. And you've done things there. So what defines big, right? It's it's definitely interesting. So it's it makes you think about the kind of games that you're backing and doing stuff there. They just canceled HeroQuest. Or not Hero, uh, HeroScape, right? Oh, they canceled on, HeroScape. On, on, on Hasbro Pulse. So it didn't fund... Oh, and and they pulled it, right? Uh, but if you look at it, the the pledge was two fifty, mm-hmm. right? So that's if. But for a I lot see. of games right now, back in two fifty is pretty standard, right? Right. I, I you, you can look at um, you know all the all the big box miniatures games that are that 
classic kind of zombicide style as we talked about right and those are 100 bucks for the intro pledge and 200 bucks for this and 400 for the all in mm -hmm. with all the stretch goals so we're pretty normalized yeah. to that but hasbro kind of stepping in and out of that okay heroescape you know it has a huge following it has this awesome stuff but it, that first box set back in the day was only 50 bucks mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. and most people that have it have it already so yeah. do they need to buy new stuff where for hero quest i think most people that had it played the crap out of it and and they need a new version of it right you you get that new version of hero quest and you're like awesome i got this now and it's got a bunch of new characters and now i can play with my kids yeah. right and, and then i can do all these things and it's got the ai so now we can play together and do all that and that's a no-brainer right and like at gen con they release the new uh, expansion and all they're doing is old stuff with some new stuff and it's like great if you just yep. keep that consistent most people that are playing that game are going to buy it right so and is that a big game yeah right but also like 200 bucks for or 100 bucks for the base game and all of that there for people that are into that that's not a it's not a problem right well that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds for more resources articles and to listen to past podcasts please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.